Well, this morning we are beginning a series in the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. I don't know how long our series will be, but it will be long. But my hope, my plan is for us to spend time in Isaiah and then as, uh, as opportunities arise, um, uh, take pauses at natural pauses in the book and go elsewhere in Scripture. So maybe we'll, when we move outside in the summer again for worship, we'll, we'll begin a smaller series and then we'll jump back into Isaiah. And then if we're still plugging along, we'll pause at the holidays next year, Lord willing, and jump into something and then jump back in. So we're, we're going to spend some time in Isaiah uh, and we're going to see the, the, the wonder of God's glory, the majesty of our King who reigns over us. Now, there's a couple of dangers as you think about Isaiah, as you think about Old Testament prophecy. Sometimes you can read vivid imagery, but you can think, I'm not sure what this means for me. It's kind of hard to follow. So I encourage you to, to, to regularly, if you miss a Sunday, to, to tune in to the, to the uh, podcast or to the audio recording on our website. Or if you, um, if you, if you uh, want to find a, a study resource to help you in our time of study, we'll have some available for you um, uh, that, that I'll be pointing you towards this week and in the days to come that will help guide our time in this story. And uh, my prayer is that we will not only see the, the vivid, vivid, vivid nature of the imagery and see the wonder of that which God says, but it, it wouldn't be like a movie that, that we watch and we think, oh wow, that was really impressive, but I don't really know what it was about. But may we see it and may we know that it is about our King Jesus and helping us to see and adore Him all the more wonderfully. So Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. Let me pray and we will get to work. God, would you anoint the preaching of your word now? Would you show us ourselves in honesty? And would you show us our Savior and the glory of his name? We pray this in Christ. Amen. Do you enjoy watching a good courtroom drama? Some of you might remember the days of Perry Mason or of Matlock. I remember watching those as a child, spending time at my grandma's house. Perry Mason, Matlock, and uh, The Price is Right were the three staples at my grandma's house. That was until the summer of 1995 when I got a healthy dose, really over the course of the whole year, of the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, every day I was at my grandmother's house, O.J. Simpson trial would be on. I learned incredible sayings that I thought would help me get through the rest of life. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit haven't used that one since. But we love a good courtroom drama. Today, you might watch uh, Law and Order, or you might like something that's not so serious, like Judge Judy. We love it in our movies. You remember uh, the courtroom scene and I think the movie, uh, My Cousin Vinny. Or some of you still might say the line uh, uh, to others around you whenever they want you to tell them something that's hard for them to hear. And they say, I want you to tell me the truth. And you say, you can't handle the truth, like a few good men. We love courtroom dramas. But we don't love courtroom dramas so much when we are the one in the courtroom. When I was in high school or college, I had to go to court to deal with a speeding ticket. I don't really remember the details of what I was trying to get done. I'm, I'm sure I was trying to get a tip, ticket, but I was hoping to get it taken care of. And yet, I had this irrational fear that the judge was going to swing the gavel down and sentence me to life without parole for the terrible crime of going 63 in a 45. As we enter the book of Isaiah, we enter a courtroom. 
But this isn't a courtroom that has been made for TV. It's a courtroom that demands that we sit down and we observe. We are, we are, we are part, of the, um, part of the gallery. We are part of those observing that which is ongoing in a court case that was prosecuted some 2,700 years ago. Yet, in the perspicuity of God's Word, which, ironically, the word perspicuity actually means clarity. Very unclear word. But in the perspicuity of God's Word, we are brought into this courtroom that we might hear that which we need to hear. So in one sense, we are observers watching a case that has already been prosecuted. But in another sense, we are defendants. That must hear from the judge, hear from the one who has put us on trial. Now, before we enter into the courtroom of Isaiah 1, let's make sure to understand the basic contextual information that will help us as we embark on this journey. So look at verse 1 of Isaiah 1. Verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah is the one who writes. Isaiah is the one whom God has given this prophetic vision to. And he's writing concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem city, capital of Israel. Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel. So Israel had been established as a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. But then there had been uh, rebellion against God. And there had been strife and schism and split amongst both what was the northern kingdom, which was referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was referred to as Judah. So when you see Judah, just think the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, Israel, the northern kingdom, had departed from God in unfaithfulness and uh, pagan idolatry long before, but Judah was kind of hanging on. And Jerusalem was in Judah, and Judah's hanging on, but this is now a warning from God that Judah is spiritually collapsing and falling away. And so Isaiah, whose name, um, uncoincidentally, entirely intentionally, means God is salvation is calling the people of Judah back to the God who is their salvation. And Isaiah wrote over the course of the reign of four different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, four kings. And so he's writing spans across approximately 40 to 60 years from around 740 to 680-ish B.C. And so Isaiah writes in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. When God gave Israel the law under Moses, he promised his people blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, there are four four occasions where God actually, in establishing the covenant with his people, he calls the heavens and the earth to be witnesses of this covenant establishment between God and his people whom he had redeemed and brought to himself. So when God calls the heavens and the earth as witnesses, he's calling them as witnesses that one side has broken this covenant between God and his people. In in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose that your offspring may live. But heaven and earth are witnesses that Judah has chosen disobedience. Understand that the beginning of verse 2 underscores both the majesty of the judge as well as the magnitude of the judgment. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. 
for the Lord has spoken. Now, what is critical for us to grasp as we begin Isaiah chapter 1 for our time today is that we must read this and we must welcome the conviction of God upon our hearts. Because it is in conviction of sin that God meets us with surprising restoration of relationship with Him. Let me repeat that. Let us welcome the conviction of God upon our hearts. As we enter this courtroom, let us welcome the conviction of God upon our hearts. Because it is in conviction of sin that God meets us with surprising restoration of relationship with Him. Now, if you are not a Christian, this might sound totally unbelievably odd. Let us welcome God prosecuting his case against us and even stirring our hearts to a very uneasy, guilty feeling. But what we as Christians know and what scripture presents to us is that the convicting hand of God to us is a hand of judge, uh, of, of mercy meant to spare us from the judgment of his wrath on our sin. It is as if the conviction of God is him holding up the x-ray and coming and, and telling us, see your injuries and come to me and find healing. So we're going to hear God's prosecution, his charges against his children, Judah, in three acts. First, his children have rebelled. This is what we see in verses 2 through 9. Two through nine. Notice how God describes Judah as having turned from to the point that they have lost understanding of who they are and how they have been brought into existence. They're God's people brought into existence by God's power. So in the second part of verse 2, God says, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Like the prodigal son in Luke 15, who was so blinded by his own rebellion against his father, the people of Judah were so lost in their rebellion against their father that they were dumber than the animals of the field, as verse 3 says. And look at verse 4, how God describes his people. He describes them with nouns that once described their relationship with him. The first part of verse 4, look at these four different nouns, a nation, a people, offspring, and children. This is what God redeemed his people and brought them in life to. When he brought them out of Egypt, they were a nation for his own possession. They were a people set apart for his glory and for their good. They were offspring of his, redeemed and rescued and even given life by God. And they were children of his, promised his provision and his care. But now they are, as verse 4 says, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So what we see in the first part of Isaiah 1 is God laying out, prosecuting his case, laying out the, the fact that his children are rebels against him. Now, you might think as God saying that I am a rebel against him. Well, I'm not going to answer that question for you. In one sense, we all are sinful rebels against God. But in this sense, he is speaking specifically of hardened rejection and hardened turning away from him. So I will leave that up between you and God, the Holy Spirit ministering the word of God in your life. But as we sit under this, maybe God will open your eyes to ways in which you need to feel that convicting mercy and repent. 
Maybe that will happen for some of us. But for all of us, we ought to at least hear this as a warning not to depart from our God who has created us and redeemed us. We ought to hear this as a call to rejoice in our God who keeps us and preserves us and does not let us veer away. Now look at how God seeks to get the attention of his people. And as we read verses 5 and 6, hear his heart ache for his children whom he has created and whom he has redeemed. Listen to verse 5. Why will you be struck down? Think, hold on, as I read this, everyone who is a parent, think of your children as they've made decisions that were destructive to them that you did not understand and you pleaded with them to turn away from that path. Hear the heart of God the Father. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. God sees the injury and the harm that his people's rebellion against him has brought upon themselves, and he does not know why they will not turn, turn away from their sin and turn back to Him. Do you hear the fatherly voice? Your sickness and the tragedy that you endure is a result of your sin. Can't you turn to Me and live? And you remember the previous warnings from the book of Deuteronomy about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. As we get to verse 7 and 8, we read of a curse for the people of Israel's disobedience that has come upon them. God describing Judah and the fact that an outside nation has invaded her, has pillaged her, has ravaged her, and only the city of Jerusalem barely still stands. We read verse 7, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners, And then he describes Jerusalem and the daughter of Zion is left. Like a booth in a vineyard. A booth there, think of like a a, a tent that you might set up in the yard to camp out overnight. Like a tent in a vineyard. Like a lodge in a cucumber field. Like a besieged city. Jerusalem, this city of great strength and renown, has been reduced to a booth. To a tent that a heavy gust of wind could topple over. She is besieged. By virtue of the judgment of God upon her sin. Something that we have to grasp as we make our way through this text as well as the whole book of Isaiah. Is that God is transcendently glorious in his nature as well as in his work in the world. Early on right at the outset we see him raise up nations to act as judgment upon his people who had broken covenant with him. And so Isaiah stands before us, and as we are driving into the city limits of the book of Isaiah, there is a warning on that sign that says, Welcome to Isaiah. And that warning says, If you need God to be your superstitious good luck charm, but He may have no power in the world or no authority over you, then turn back now. But all who enter in, you enter into the majesty of the reign of the God who has created all things, who rules over His people. And rules over them in their obedience and in their disobedience. Now it's possible you read verses 7 and 8. The country lies desolate. Like a booth in a vineyard, the city remains like a besieged city. And you might, you might not have used that language of Isaiah. 
But you would say these verses offer a good illustration for the state of your life much of the time. Your heart is a wreck. Your spirit is a wreck. Your life feels warped, rushed, disoriented, destroyed. You feel as if it's full of starts and stops, relational strife with others. Maybe you feel like a duck where you're looking calm above the water. You might be smiling as you go about your business, but below the surface where people can't see you, you are paddling like crazy, just trying to keep afloat. It's possible that your life feels as if it's ripping apart because you are living in defiance of God's word. Now make no mistake, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that everybody who experiences hardship in life or the, the hardship that you are experiencing, particularly in this moment, is because of any rebellion that you have committed against God and that this is him bringing direct judgment upon you. I am not saying that. I am asking you to evaluate by the Spirit's hand upon you whether, as a follower of Christ, that might be the case for what you are enduring in life. And if that is the case... Understand that sheer willpower, fake smiles, and empty religious platitudes can only take you so far. You need repentance. You might read this and you're unfamiliar with Christianity or the Bible, but you do feel like this describes your heart and your soul in ways which you could not have imagined. And so now you recognize that you were a casual observer to things and you saw everyone enter the courtroom and now you are in the courtroom of God and you hear him saying, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, and now the Lord is speaking to you. As we continue onward, we find a curious reference in verses 9 and 10. Isaiah illustrates how God views the unrighteous, the vile nature of Jerusalem and Judah by lumping them in with notoriously evil Sodom and Gomorrah. But he mentions something that we must see here, and we will see twice more in Isaiah 1, and you must hold on to this with me, brothers and sisters. What we are going to see in the courtroom of God's justice in Isaiah 1 is that when God delivers severe judgment, you often also find surprising glimpses of mercy. Look at verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Referencing total destruction. But the Lord of hosts left a remnant. Isaiah 1 verse 9 is actually quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. As the Apostle Paul was illustrating the sovereign work of God to preserve a remnant of his people as true worshipers of his who escaped wrath and found mercy. And so what we see in Isaiah 1.9 is that the Lord of hosts preserves a remnant of his people as trophies of his grace. Not because there was anything about them where they had departed from or, had, had, or, or were not undeserving of his judgment for their sin, but because God was faithful to preserve a remnant. Now, how does God preserve that remnant? How does God cause some to be spared from wrath? It is through conviction of sin. It is through the warning lights going off that he he sounds in our hearts before we have fallen off the cliff. And so conviction of sin, as I mentioned, brothers and sisters, at the outset, is a divine good gift from God where he does good surgery on our hearts. Listen to this Ray Ortland quote about conviction of sin. 
when the Spirit of God works in your heart and opens your eyes to areas in which you are sinning against God and you must repent and turn from them, and it feels so painful, listen to this. What is conviction of sin? It is not an oppressive spirit of uncertainty or paralyzing guilt feelings. Conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with the light we don't want to see and with the truth we're afraid to admit and the guilt we prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the severe love of God overruling our compulsive dishonesty, our willful blindness, and our favorite excuses. Conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. Conviction of sin is the merciful God declaring war on the false peace that we settle for. Conviction of sin is our escape from malaise to joy, from attending church to worship, from faking it to authenticity. Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring over our wounds is life. Buried in verse 9 is the fact that the same God who spoke judgment in verse 2 now stands in full power preserving a remnant to be redeemed of their rebellion and to be reborn as the children of God. The the offer of mercy rings out in the courtroom of God, if only we will hear it. And as we consider a remnant, I just want to give one word of, I hope, consolation. To those of you who you have children or grandchildren who have walked away from the faith. Allow Isaiah 1 to give you hope that he redeems those who have rebelled against him. So God is pressing his case. He's prosecuting his case against his rebellious children. First First charge is they have rebelled against him. Second charge is the falseness of their worship. Follow along as I read verses 10 through 15. He has spoken in verses 2 through 9 of like a father who is grieved by them who have rebelled. Now he is the God who is disgusted by their worship. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not like Uh, delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats when you come to appear before me who has required of you this trampling of my courts bring no more vain offerings incense is an abomination to me new moon and sabbath and the calling of convocations i cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates they have become a burden to me I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. As I read verses 10 through 15, I am stopped dead in my tracks with the awareness that it is possible to worship God in all of the manners that he has prescribed for us in his word And yet this not bring him pleasure, but bring him disgust. 
As I read verses 10 to 15, I am stopped dead in my tracks with the awareness that it is possible for me to prepare sermons that are theologically sound and biblically accurate and faithful to the text, and yet this bring God disgust if my life is out of sorts with his word. It seems that the people of Jerusalem and Judah were at least somewhat aware of their disobedience to God. But the problem is that they had turned their worship services and offerings that he had prescribed to them, not as an attitude to return to God in contrition, but an attitude where they think they can appease God while continuing to go go on dishonoring him with their lives. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Are you continually taking advantage of girls or of women in your life for your own sexual satisfaction or gratification? Continually taking advantage of girls or women through looking at porn? Well, the solution seems, at least in your head, it might be, well, I'll just keep going to church, make sure to keep checking in with God. After all, it's easier to bow your head and feign religiosity that is humble, or feign religiosity, it's easier to do that than to humble yourself in actual repentance. You're frequently steamrolling at or snapping at family or those who you work alongside of. Unwilling to bring your temper into check and sit under the cross of Christ? Well, it's easier to sing a song on Sunday morning than it is to clean up your heart. God says in verse 12 that with such a heart and such a disposition, we are trampling his courts. If he were speaking to us today, he would say, I am disgusted by this. When you step into the church service, all you are doing is tracking dirt on the carpet. How common is this in our day and age? How common is this that we trust in a a, a confirmation of the past? Or we trust in some kind of religious formalism that thinks God only knows and sees what happens in this room for one hour a a, a week? How common is it that we think we can uh, live lives with whatever license we need if only we will check in with God from time to time? If I asked you how best you seek God's blessing on your life, you might respond, well, go to church. But in verse 15, we see this unrepentant approach to the worship of the people of God is actually the opposite of finding His blessing and His favor on our lives. God says in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Though you make many prayers... um, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This, is, this promise that he'll turn his eyes away from us is the exact opposite of the promise that he makes in the blessing of Aaron in number 6 when he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. And what? The Lord make his face to shine upon you. God says, in your disobedience and in your hard-hearted rebellion which you ter- refuse to turn to me, I will turn my head away from you. Church family, far more important than the songs that we sing each Sunday morning is the heart from which we sing them. And church family, far more important than the sermons that I write is the heart from which I write and deliver them. So how does God respond to his people who worship him in a manner that disgusts him and even causes him to turn his face away? 
as you feel that weight descending upon you perhaps, settling upon us, we have our second surprise offer of mercy in verses 16 to 20. God says in verse 16 and 17, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. If you would like to know what it means to repent, this is a great picture of it. At the end of verse 16 and beginning of verse 17, three steps. Cease. Cease to do evil. Stop what you are doing that is sinful before God. Learn to do good. Learn what it is you ought to be doing in accordance with His Word that He has laid out before you. And then seek justice. Set new priorities for your life. Confirm, conform to God's Word and to His will for your life. God tells His people that He will not tolerate their sinful corruption and re- rebellion against them. He sees them trying to worship while harming the fatherless and neglecting the widows amongst them. And he tells them to wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from, from uh, before his eyes. And then look at what he comes in with in response to our repentance in verses 16 and 17. He comes in with verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be, like, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There aren't many advantages to a snowy winter, right? But one such advantage is that we get, in every snowfall, we get frequent reminders of God's promise to wash the stains of our sins away and to declare us righteous in Him. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Second surprising offer of mercy amid severe judgment. Yet a warning in verse 20 of what we can anticipate for those who won't come to Him in repentance. So God describes His children who have rebelled against Him. He describes His disgust with their empty worship. And the last charge He makes against them is that their society is corrupt in verses 21 to 26. Listen to the corruption of the people of Judah in Jerusalem. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts, but they do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. Then listen to verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies, avenge myself on my foes. 
It's funny, right? When we're diagnosing our own hearts, we might be a little slower to see the rebellion of our own hearts in verses 2 through 9. Like, God, you're being a little firm here. Give me a little benefit of the doubt. But then we get to the corruption of society in verses 21 to 24, and we're like, yep, our society is corrupt. Corrupt society are born out of corrupt hearts. Now make no mistake, the corruption that plagues our society is born out of hearts that reject God. And we must be careful in understanding Judah and Israel were a theocracy. We are not a theocracy today. They were under the rule of God. They were, we recognize this, and though we are under the rule of God in one sense, we are not a nation that has been created by God as the people of Israel were. Though this ought to inform how we pray for those around us in our towns, in our state, in our nation, but as we look at our world and as we shake our head, we ought to be careful that this cause us not to shake our head at everything happening in the world around us, but it ought to cause us to look at the church and make sure that we make no, no room in our midst for corruption and evil. And so we ask ourselves as Christians, as the church, ought we as Christians not to be people who are at the forefront contending for justice and righteousness in our lives and in the world? Ought we to be ones who are not giving in to the vices that plague our world and the harm that comes upon those who are downtrodden and mistreated and abused? But rather, ought we, ought, ought we to offer a shelter for the victim and the poor and the helpless and, and the abused? Just this week, I heard this, another story of a prominent author, preacher, influential Christian figure defender of the faith who had a great public ministry but a dreadful private life, prolific in sexual abuse for years, hidden from the world while publicly proclaiming Christ. This ought not to be so in the church of Christ. Maybe the warning here, even for those who are not Christians and see professing followers of God given to corruption and vice, God sees and judgment will come. Now one more time, listen to God as he responds to the corruption of Judah. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all of your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Do you see that promise of mercy? God saying that he will clean them up as with lie. He will restore their judges. He, the city that, was, that he called a whore in verse 21 will be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city in verse 25. This is part of the central promise of the whole book of Isaiah. God will redeem and rescue his people. He will establish his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, and a place where people are made new in him. One commentator on this Section of Isaiah 1 said the first chapter of Isaiah shows us the before picture, what we are when left to ourselves. Later prophecies piece together the after picture, what God promises to make of everyone he saves. By the end of the book, what God achieves is not simply a patched up version of you and me. His grace will actually create a new heavens and a new earth and new us as well. Isaiah 1 opens the way to our God glorification by deconstructing our self glorification. We must be 
we, we must be humbled under the weight of our sin in order for God to build us up and to see the weight of his glory. So the question we ask ourselves as we wrapped up is, is we, see, we have seen God's charge against us, now we see God's verdict. Will we live or will we die by justice and righteousness? Will we live or will we die by justice and righteousness? This is in verses 27 to 31. You might ask, how is this accomplished? How will you accomplish, O God, this perfect place of justice? As you've said in verse 26, and even work righteousness in us when you have just laid out this full case against us. It doesn't make sense. You're just going to let us off with a warning? No. Remember how we've seen the surprising uh, 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 arrivals of God's mercy when we least expect him? Well, one more in verse 27, as he alludes to um, the the most surprising appearance of mercy that the world has ever known. Look at verse 27. Zion, that's speaking of Jerusalem, the city of God, shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 1 verse 27 is taking us from the courtroom that we are in in Isaiah 1 to the judgment for sin that Christ endured in the courtroom of his cross. Zion is redeemed by Christ cross of christ justice is fully delivered and in the cross of christ our righteousness is fully found what we must do is repent won't you look to jesus and live zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness this is the call for isaiah to us today come to christ and live in righteousness And know that the justice for your sin has found its match in Christ. But as we hear this verdict and understand the warning for those who don't look in faith upon Christ. As we conclude chapter 1. God says, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. This is simply referring to gods of their day that they had trusted in. Idols of their heart. Oaks and gardens that they found their beauty and their life in. But ultimately the oaks, their leaves wither and the garden finds no water. It is of no lasting value. And then what happens to those who trust in the oaks and the gardens of their own hearts and refuse to turn to the Lord in repentance? Verse 31, the strong shall become tender and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The case in God's courtroom has been made. The judge has spoken, but is in a twist that is unlike any courtroom of our day, he has pronounced the verdict. And in Isaiah 1, he says, which will you choose? He leaves the ball in your court. Let us welcome the conviction of God upon our hearts. Because it is in conviction of sin that God meets us in surprising mercy and restores us to himself. It is in conviction of sin that he draws us to Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you are our ruler, you are our authority, and you are our judge. And in Christ... We live and move and have our being. 
In Christ, we can bring the weight of our sins. I pray that any of my brothers or sisters here who are convicted of their own sin, may they bring those to Christ and live. May they find that no matter how scarlet they feel their sins are, no matter how, how, how unclean they are, Christ makes them righteous and he washes them white as snow. Help them, help us to come to him and live. And help us to know that in the courtroom of God's mercy in Christ, we all shall be pronounced righteous by virtue of that which Christ has done. If only we will hear and feel the weight of conviction of sin and look to him in faith. It is in him we pray. Amen.